Asa is a good king. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign as king of Judah. He reigned 41 years. There's longevity in righteousness, gang. He reigned 41 years. And his mother's name was Maaka, the daughter of Abishalom. Asa, verse 11, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. Man, every time you see a verse like that in First and Second Kings, <laughs> cling to it, because they're few and far between. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which his fathers had made. He also removed Maaka his mother from being queen mother. So she had herself sitting pretty. You know, doing her own kind of ruling. Her first son, Abijam, had been king. And then after him, well, now Asa's king. So obviously, I'm doing something right. She's thinking to herself. Well, she gets booted off of that seat because she had made, verse 13, a horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kedron, which tells us that the horrid image of the Asherah wasn't out somewhere in a high place. It was right there in Jerusalem. But Asa said no more. He cut it down. He took it down to the Kedron Valley and burned it up. Verse 14. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. I like that statement. Asa did right in the sight of the Lord. So what did he do? Well, he deposed the queen mother and he destroyed her idols. And think about this. That could not have been easy. He had to remove his mom from power. Mom, I know you're real comfortable up there on the throne, but i got to talk to you about something. This isn't working. I I pause to point this out because the reality is, in truth, it's never easy to go head-to-head with a family member as a result of following the Lord. And that's what Asa had to do. If I follow God, Mama's going to be angry. If I truly follow the Lord as the Christian He's calling me to be, i got brothers and sisters who will not talk to me anymore. i got a mom or a dad who will think I'm nuts. i got family that every time I mention Jesus, they just get all upset and say, Why do you have to bring the Jesus thing into our holiday dinner? Lisa deposed his mother and destroyed her idol. Jesus said in Matthew 10.37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter, sorry, sweetheart, more than me, is not worthy of me. Jesus lovingly, gently commands first place over all others. It may be difficult, but he must come first. That is the point of living in a right relationship. Righteousness with the Father is God is first. That's why David was righteous. God was first. His sin was bad, yes, but God is first. Sometimes we forget, by the way, that the Lord loves our family members even more than we do. And when we're afraid of, afraid of offending by mentioning Jesus, or afraid that they're going to get upset with us, don't forget the fact that God wants to see them saved if they're not. That He has more compassion and more love for them. He went to the cross for your family, have you? Boy, would I die for my mother? I die for my sister on a brutal cross. I don't have a sister. So I can say, yes, I would. (laughs) Would I die for my brother on a cross made of wood? Jesus already did. So obviously he loves all of our family more than we even do. I think it's interesting in Luke 9, 61 famous section of scripture guys are coming right and left saying to Jesus hey I'll follow you I'll follow you first I gotta go bury a dead guy and Jesus says let the dead bury themselves well that's rude you know I'll, I'll follow you Lord anywhere you go yeah the birds the birds have nests and the foxes have holes a son of man doesn't have anywhere to sleep and then someone said to Jesus I will follow you Lord but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home A very reasonable request. And Jesus said, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I can't even say goodbye to Mama. Jesus, I think, is reading right into this person's heart and recognizing the person wants to go home to work things out with the family. And Jesus would say, You let me work things out with your family. I'll deal with them. You come follow me.
Asa didn't only depose his mother and destroy her idol, he also drove the male prostitutes out of the land. Now, we got to pause for a moment and hear me. The word here in verse 12 is sodomites, literally male homosexuals. The reason it's translated male cult prostitutes is because, in addition to prostitution, homosexuality had its pagan roots. Homosexuality was about pagan idolatry. It was connected to it. And it's interesting to me, I've talked about homosexuality from time to time as it emerges in Scripture and we, we deal with it. Sometimes it's very difficult because there are those who would be offended. In fact, I believe the last time that I talked about it, there was some offense. Now, I could be wrong. I don't always read people's responses and reactions right. But I at least got one nasty email. I read that right. I love how they signed it, though. The, the email was signed from a last-time visitor. That was nice. I'm like... Have a nice day. So anyway, homosexuality. Look at Asa. God tells us that Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And as an example of the rightness of Asa's behavior, he drives homosexuality out of the land of Judah. There is no tolerance for it in the land of Judah. For that today, Asa would be called intolerant, a bigot, and a homophobe. In Canada today, Asa could be put in prison for what he did, driving out the homosexuals. How, how intolerant of you. you got to roll with the times. Well, while the world would call Asa intolerant and a bigot, God called him righteous. That should tell us something. Oh, that's Old Testament. Okay, well, read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Read Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. But I'm not mentioning this tonight to stand up and rag on homosexuals. You know, the thing is, it's real easy to do in a church where pretty much, especially on a Wednesday night, I'm doubting that anybody here is a homosexual. <laughs> it's easy to do when surrounded by our friends of, of like-mindedness to say, oh yeah, homosexuality, yeah, preach it. Talk against it, Rick, go for it, yeah. Take a stand. This is not taking a stand. This is hanging out with friends of similar mind. Taking a stand would be, be me going out and preaching this on the street corner in Anacortes. You know, where people are holding up the signs, the anti-war and all that. And go, I'm going to take my own corner, anti-homosexual. <laughs> you know, waving the cars, honk if you hate gays. I mean, you know, and churches do that, don't they? God hates gays. God doesn't hate gays. God hates the sin. God hates the devastation it brings in their lives. He doesn't hate them. Because you know what? If he hated them then you would have to hate me. And not because I'm gay, but because I'm a sinner too. How do we as Christians who accept the biblical view of homosexuality as immoral, and the Bible is absolutely clear, I'm sorry you cannot get around that. The only way you can avoid the Bible's statement of the immorality of homosexuality is not to read the verses. The Bible's clear on it. So how do we, with a biblical view balance our view without being judgmental or intolerant to those who have chosen that lifestyle. Let me give you a couple of ways to respond. And I've actually responded to an email on this very question this last week. Here's what you do. Number one, you deal with the truth. Someone's coming to you and asking, I've got a family member, I've got a friend, I don't know what to do with them, I don't know what to say. What do I do? You start with the truth. Homosexuality is sin. That's the truth. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Romans 1, 26 and 27, and there are plenty of other verses, Old Testament and New Testament alike, that express this truth. Homosexuality is sin. But you deal with the truth, and then Ephesians 4, 15 tells us you deliver the truth with love. You deliver the truth with love. As Christians, we've got to start because what's happening in the church is the foundation of the truth is being shaken. And Christians are saying, well, maybe if we back down from the truth and then talk to these people of this lifestyle, they'll accept us. No, it's not the right approach. You don't leave the truth behind to try and reach somebody. You stand on the truth. But you deliver it with love. What do you mean? I was asked this week, what do you say to a person who says, why would a loving God create a person to be gay and then condemn them to hell? And the answer to that question is very simply, he didn't. 
He doesn't. He wouldn't. The loving God of the Bible did not create you into this lifestyle that is so devastating and so difficult and so horrible. If you talk to a homosexual, they may, at least up front, holding up a bronze shield, they may say, No, it's a good life. I I like this life. I'm happy with this life. But it doesn't take long, if they're being real, when they put down the shield, for them to say, I didn't have any choice in this. I was made this way. Well, why would you say that? Because I don't like it. I'm just stuck in it. The Lord didn't create gay people gay well what about the statistics you know what the statistics say the exact opposite of the media lies that were fed about homosexuality what we're told is no this is in the genes this is the way they are they just have to be no it's not true and I'll recommend to you a book called An Ounce of Prevention if you want to read up on this or just have some information to talk to someone if you have a friend or family member who's gay to deal with the truth and deliver the truth in love. Don Shamirer is his last name S-C-H-M-I-E-R-E-R Don Shamirer. He wrote an excellent book easy to read called An Ounce of Prevention. You can get it at hisservants.com I believe is where it is. Hisservants.com uh, You can check Amazon other places I don't know if they carry it or not. If nothing else, look up Don Schmierer and Ounce of Prevention and it'll show you where to go. But speaking the truth in love, gang, God is not silent on the issue of homosexuality. Because turning a blind eye to any self-destructive lifestyle is not loving. Let me say that again. Turning a blind eye or blatantly just accepting a self-destructive lifestyle is not loving. It's the most unloving thing you can do. Live and let live. They're going off a cliff, but I'm not going to interrupt that. They're probably going to die of AIDS, but I don't want to speak into that life. The violence among homosexuals, and I don't have the statistics right on my mind, but they're in this book, An Ounce of Prevention. The level of violence among homosexuals is huge compared to heterosexuals. The number of partners is huge. It is not what the world says that, you know, they couple up and get married. No, it's multiple, multiple, multiple in the hundreds sometimes of partners per year is the standard. The pain, the illnesses, not just AIDS, but the sexually transmitted disease are rampant in homosexuality. This is not a life that anyone who thought it through ahead of time would want. And so we... Deal with the truth, but we deliver the truth with love. That a loving God refuses to ignore a sin that is destroying people. And a loving people, a loving church, refuses to ignore the reality of homosexuality. How does the church then respond to the homosexual community? We respond with love. We don't stand out on the corner with hate gay signs. We don't fear being in a friendship relationship with someone who is gay because you know what? They're no different than anyone else who who is, is in rebellion to God. So I love them as a friend. I treat them like I would treat anybody else. But as I gain confidence and grow in that relationship... And there's true and and healthy affection there for that person. Then I speak into their life. You know what? Let me tell you what the real truth of the scriptures is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The reality is God loves you. And he loves you too much to ignore what's going on in your life. That's the truth. And that's how we speak the truth in love. Anything else, gang? I heard this said, I like this phrase. Anything else is sloppy agape. <laughs> We're supposed to love everyone, so we just accept homosexuality. Again, it is not loving to let someone drive off a cliff. It is loving to do everything you can to stop them with love in your heart for them, not with judgment. You know, quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Flip over there. 1 Corinthians 5. We have an interesting example of how Paul dealt with a situation where there's a guy who wasn't homosexual. Actually, he was sleeping, I believe it is, with his father's wife. Not his mother, but probably his stepmom. And this is going on in the church at Corinth, and the church doesn't know what to do with it. 
<laughs> and I, I relate to that. I understand. There are some times where I, find, I hear about something going on and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that, Lord. How do we handle this situation? This is a new one, you know. And so the church doesn't know what to do. So listen to this. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You can almost hear Paul's voice going up. I can't believe this. Verse 2, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who was so committed, who had so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided, Paul writes, to deliver such a one to Satan. Cast him out. Disfellowship. This is where, the, by the way, where the whole idea of disfellowshipping comes from. You refuse fellowship with such a one who is living this horrible lifestyle. This is the same Paul who in Ephesians chapter 2 said, By grace you have been saved and through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. This is the grace apostle saying this guy should be booted from the assembly and delivered to Satan. Why? Finish the verse. For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. I love that about Paul. He, man, when he got on the road, the missionary road of his life, it was all about the eternal. This guy's life is messed up, and he needs to be basically handed over. That's what, that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, by the way, about homosexuality. God gave them over to their lusts. said, alright, here you go. Live it out. See how it works for you. Because sometimes only by allowing someone to walk fully in their sin without the support of a fellowship of Christians, but closing the door and saying, as long as you are choosing this lifestyle, you cannot be here. Only by allowing them to feel the full weight of their sin in the flesh can that person ultimately be saved in the Spirit. That is Paul's heart, to see this person saved. He says, your boasting is not good. What boasting? Well, the church of Corinth apparently is going, we love everyone. Yeah, that guy's sleeping with his, you know, stepmom, but hey, we're a loving fellowship. And Paul says, you're bogus. You're boasting. Is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You have this kind of thing going on in your fellowship. Guess what? It's just going to make it easier for the next guy and the next guy and the next guy until that leaven starts to spread out in your own fellowship. And then Paul says, and check this out, verse 7, Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. And here's the centerpiece. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. If you're just tolerating this stuff in your church fellowship, where's the place that Jesus is going to sit who himself can't abide sin? Well, Paul's reason reason for such a harsh accent and and a difficult one. Across the years, many, many churches have wondered, is this the point of this fellowship? (laughs) Is this the point at which we say, all right, I'm sorry, you got to go? That's a tough call. But Paul's entire reasoning behind it, and the reason why I stand up here and say with homosexuality, we have to be purveyors of truth with love, is because our concern is not the temporary satisfaction of the flesh it's the eternal salvation of the soul that's our primary concern and if we stand there with that in mind I think we're going to be alright again the most loving thing you can do for a homosexual friend or family member is not blindly accept the behavior it's to tell them the truth the truth of the scriptures the truth of the lifestyle and the truth that God so loved and they may hate you for it and they refuse to talk to you anymore but you might be the one voice in their entire life the one voice that rings true and prayerfully it will hit home someday so Asa right with God drove sodomy out from Israel back to 1 Kings 15 verse 14 
But, of course, the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. He brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. So he's given, he's generous, he's walking with the Lord, he's righteous. Now... There is a problem, a couple little problem areas with Asa. There was war between Asa and Basha, the king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah, which is Ramallah today. He fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. And then Asa took all the silver and gold which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Kibramon, the son of Hetzion, the king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ejon and Dan, Abel, Beth Maacah, and all of Kinnereth, which, by the way, is Galilee. Lake Kinnereth is the Sea of Galilee. Besides all the land of Naphtali, verse 21, when Baasha, or Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and remained in Terza. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had built. And King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now for all the good that Asa did, he had some trust issues. He loved the Lord, but his faith was weak in two areas, in the areas of defense and in the area of disease. In the area of defense, he makes an alliance with Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is the king of Aram, so that's Syria, or where Syria is, Damascus. So that's up north, north of Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Judah's down here. So they're on either side of Israel. So he says, let's make a union, you and I, and in between us, break your covenant there with with Basha, king of Israel, and put the pressure on. Turn the screws a bit. And that's exactly what happens. And so Basha pulls back from his attempt to enter into Judah because of this alliance that Asa makes. So what's the problem with that? It was political maneuvering. Yeah, but it was political maneuvering out of fear. And you can read this more clearly in Second Chronicles chapter 16, which tells us the Lord will send a prophet to Asa to say, shouldn't have done that. All the silver and gold utensils and things that you brought into the house of the Lord and then you took them right back out and sent them up to Ben-Hadad to make a covenant with him. He should have just made a covenant with me. I'm your protector. I'm your defense. I'm your shield, God told Abraham, and your very great reward is me. Check with me first before you go make alliances somewhere else. So he had a defense problem. He didn't trust the Lord. He trusted in his political maneuvering. And then verse 23 going on. It says, All the rest of the acts of Asa and all his might and all that he did in the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Now we won't even talk about Jehoshaphat tonight. He comes up in a later chapter. But something that's interesting, not only did he have a defense problem, Asa, but he also had a disease problem. And Second Chronicles tells us that his death was caused by his foot disease. In fact, let me read this verse to you, Second Chronicles 16.12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. And so he died. Interesting. He did not seek the Lord but the physicians. This is ironic, by the way, because Asa's name means physician. I don't know if his mom wanted her to be a doctor, but he became a king instead. You know, she was a little disappointed. She was hoping for the bigger paycheck. I don't know. His name means physician, and yet he dies of a foot disease. When you read this, you might say, well, whoa, does this mean we don't go to the doctors? No. It means we don't trust the doctors over the Lord. It means if we're sick, we go to the Lord. And we pray to the Lord. And yeah, I, and I'm a proponent, gang, of, of medicine. I don't think that we're wrong in, in vaccinations and in going to the doctor when we're sick. But man, take it to the Lord. Oh, I'm feeling lousy here. 
And I pray for healing. And I pray you give my doctor some insight into what's going on. But Asa didn't do that. He trusted his namesake. He trusted the doctors over the Lord. And he ends up dying because of his foot disease. However, he still dies with the mark of a good king, one who walked right like his father David, holy, devoted to the Lord. Now back to Israel, verse 25. We leave Judah. We come back into Israel. We're still moving here. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. Remember how long Asa reigned? 41 years? This guy reigned. In fact, during Asa's reign, there are going to be six kings come and go in Israel. While Asa's the one guy on the throne. There's a difference. Righteousness does lead to a degree of longevity. But Nadab reigned for two years. Verse 26, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin in which he made Israel sin. Verse 27, then Basha, the son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. It came about as soon as he was king, this is Basha now, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. Remember the prophecy? He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shelanite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned, and which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger, now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Verse 32, going on a little bit further, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah... Basha, son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. Now, he's a wicked king, but he does reign for a stint, at least. Verse 34, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin, which he made Israel sin. And what sin is that? Idolatry. But I want you to know something that fascinates me here. Basha becomes, even in his wickedness and even in his evil, Basha becomes the tool of prophetic judgment against Jeroboam's house. And yet Basha does the same thing himself. What he wipes out Jeroboam's house for is the exact same thing Basha himself does. Only more so, and Basha's name means wicked. Nadab, who we read over very quickly, there's not much said about him in his two years of rule, but Nadab means liberal. So you're going from liberal to wicked, and I don't know if there's a progression there politically or not. I'm not going to go there. But Basha is a wicked king. I'll let you think about that, and you Republicans might get a little kick out of it later. The kings of Israel, gang, get progressively more and more and more wicked. When you think one has gone far enough, another one goes further. And reminded again of Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to a people. The issue of Israel's heart trouble continues to be idolatry, and things get so bad that within 200 years, the kingdom of Israel is captured and destroyed by the Assyrians. 136 years after that, Judah goes into Babylonian captivity. Yeah, yeah, Rick, you've told us that before. Yeah, but listen, think about this. Why does God do that? Is it just a punishment? I think it's more. The two nations that will destroy, Assyria will destroy Israel, and then Babylon will destroy Judah. Those two nations were the biggest proponents of pagan idolatry of any nations in the entire area. It's as if God was saying, you want idolatry, Israel? You got it. You want to have idol worship, northern Israel? I'm sending you to Assyria. You'll experience some idolatry up there like you have never seen before. Judah, you want idol worship? You're going to Babylon. And let's see how you handle it there. It's interesting because God often uses this means of discipline. He says to Israel and Judah, I'm going to inundate you with idols. He did the same thing to Israel in the desert. Remember Psalm 106 verse 14 says they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So as a father, what did he do? Did he withdraw his gifts? No. It says he gave them their request but sent leanness to their souls. 
Remember the story when the Israelites are wandering through the desert they begin whining and saying, we don't have enough meat to eat. This, this manna stuff is getting old. They've had enough manna bread to last a lifetime. Give us some meat. God says, you want meat? It's going to come out your nostrils. Literally, I love that verse. He gave them so much quail that they stuffed themselves sick on it. God often does that with our sin. I lust after something. I want something bad. And God says, really? Okay. You can have as much as you want and more. And what God did with Israel in the desert, He gave them the request but sent leanness into their soul. You know, it's like the old Schick uh, smoking commercials. The old pattern for getting rid of cigarette smoking is they put a guy in a room and just make him smoke as much as he wanted. Smoke, 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 smoke until you're absolutely sick and throwing up. I'm not sure how well it worked. I think it may have created a larger generation of smokers. I'm not sure. But God will sometimes inundate us with the very sin that we desire so that we realize, man, I am more empty now that I've got it than when I wanted it. And there's leanness in the soul. Be careful what you hunger for. You just might get it. Well, the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked away in, in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will consume Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. I'm going to do the same thing to you that I had you do to Jeroboam, because you're doing worse than he did. Anyone of Basha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone of him who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Fascinating to me. By the way, I just want to point out something as we go by here. God is still calling the northern kingdom my people Israel. See, when the kingdom divided, though the people were split... God is still looking at all 12 tribes and saying, these are my kids. These all belong to me. He didn't just side with one or the other. He sided with both. Don't fight each other, kids. Get along. And if you, king of Israel, will follow me, I'm going to establish you. And if you, king of Judah, will follow me, I'll establish you. You can have two great kingdoms instead of one. Even though you can't keep it together, I still love all of you. The Father says... Now verse 6 going on. Basha slept with his fathers and was buried in Terza. And Allah, his son, became king in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, also came against Basha and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. In the 20 year... Now, did you hear that? I just caught that. Wow. His anger came against Basha because he followed in the ways of Jeroboam and God was angry with Basha because he struck down the house of Jeroboam. Wait a minute. God, it was your foreordained uh, call. I mean, you're the one who wanted the house of Jeroboam wiped out. And now you're spanking the tool of spanking? Now you're hammering the hammer? Why is that? Because God's the only one who has the right to discipline His people. And even if someone is used by the Lord to discipline His people, the Lord will then discipline that person as well. Perfect justice. Perfect righteousness. He will call Nebuchadnezzar to be His servant to come and capture Israel. And then God will go after Nebuchadnezzar for coming after His people Israel. And it's not an inconsistency. It's a perfect consistency of justice and righteousness on the part of God. It's amazing. You do not want to be the tool of God against Israel. And that's a role that I'd say, could you find someone else, Lord, because I just want to be right with you. We'll just let someone else deal with this. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel at Terzah and reigned two years. His servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Now he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk, in the house of Arza, who was over the household at Terzah. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and became king in his place. Verse 11, it came about when he, that is Zimri, became king as soon as he sat on his throne, that he killed all the household of Basha, 
He did not leave a single male, neither his relatives nor his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha through Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Basha carries out God's judgment against the house of Jeroboam only to face the same judgment for the exact same reason. It's interesting, Zimri didn't realize he was the hammer of judgment on Basha's house any more than Basha realized he was the hammer of God's judgment on Jeroboam. They were both just acting in wickedness. But God was acting in justice. And they were caught up in that. And gang, I guess what I'm saying here is there's a biblical spiritual principle at work and it's the principle of sin. Be sure your sin will find you out. It's going to find you out. Numbers 32.23, Galatians 6.7 Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And it may be divine judgment going on, but if you're the one doing it and you're doing it in wickedness yourself, hammer's going to fall on you as well. In other words, just because a person carries out divinely ordained judgment on another person doesn't mean that they are inherently righteous. Because, and listen, righteousness still depends on relationship. Righteousness is not action. Righteousness is being right with God in relationship with Him. Now, Basha's son, Elah, lasts only two years. But did you notice what set him up for his murder by Zimri? Look back at verses 9 and 10. He was at Terza drinking himself drunk when Zimri went in and killed him. He was drunk silly. He was on his face. He was out of it. He didn't have, you know, what's going on? What's that guy pulling a sword for? Oh! It was in that state of drunkenness that he's killed. Now, Elah's name means oak. I don't know why, but apparently he liked the oaky finish that comes from a barrel of good vino. <laughs> Zimri murders Elah when he is drunk as a skunk. And what does the Bible tell us? Psalm, uh, Proverbs 34, or 31, verse 4. It is not for kings... It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. And I wonder how many people, just across history, I wonder what the statistic is, how many lives have been claimed by drunkenness. Because that's what happened to Elah. You could say his life was claimed by drunkenness. Had he not been drunk, he would have been sober and sharp and ready when Zimri came through the door to kill him. But he didn't have any control. He was out on his face. He just had one too many. And he was unable even to stand. And so the Bible says, Ephesians 5.18, Don't get drunk with wine, it's dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit. You want to be filled up with something? Be filled with the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.7 says, Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we are of the day. We're not of night. So let's be sober. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Why does God call us to soberness? Does He want us to have a little bit of fun? He calls us to soberness so whether the enemy strikes or the Lord Himself appears, we'll be clear-minded, spirit-filled, and ready to go. Be sober. Be sharp. Verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days at Terza. He reigned a week. This was a weak king. Literally. Now the people who were camped at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, they were camped there, and the people who were camped heard it. They heard it said, Zimri has conspired and has struck down the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri... So here comes the next king of Israel, Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel, that day in the camp. Verse 17, Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon and besieged Terza. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over himself with fire and died because of his sins which he sinned doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he did, making Israel sin. Now you know what the hammer was for this guy Zimri? Zimri was. He was his own hammer. But he died because of his sin. Yet Zimri committed suicide. 
Zimri goes into the house and sets it on fire and burns himself alive in the house. That's how this king of Israel, this week-long king, decides to die. And verse 20 says, Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his conspiracy which he carried out are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Amazing. Verse 21. Let's keep moving on. The people of Israel were divided then into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king, and the other half followed Omri. So they've got Tibni and Omri in Israel. Judah and Israel divide, and now Israel's divided. And Satan loves this. Satan is all about division and tearing things apart. We've got this guy Omri. And it says the people followed, who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. And Tibni died, and Omri became king. So Tibni is never king. He just had a following. It was kind of an uprising, and the people divided. Tibni is killed, and Omri is then made the king. Now, Omri's name means student of Jehovah. But apparently, this student of Jehovah was not good in history. Because he does the exact same things that Jeroboam his father did before him. I think going down the road he could be heard singing that song, Don't Know Much About History. Because he repeats the same wicked idolatry of all the kings before him. Verse 23, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned 6 years at Terzah. He bought the hill Samaria from Shimmer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shimmer, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So it's just continuing to be stepped up a notch. And it says in verse 26, He walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might, which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Now from here on out, Samaria becomes the capital of Israel. The capital of a divided land. And even today, Samaria is there. It's called the West Bank. And the land remains divided even unto this day. Now last but not least, we come to the most wicked kings, wicked of all the kings of Israel. Verse 28. So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, became king in his place. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Wait a minute, Rick. If this Zimri guy reigned one week and he was evil and died, why does Ahab, who is the most evil, get to reign for 22 years? Because God is giving the people exactly what they want. You want idolatry? I'm going to give you the most idolatrous king you've had so far. God just keeps stepping it up. He keeps allowing them to gorge themselves on more and more and more sin until they're sick of it and until they're in Assyria and wiped out. So this Ahab reigns. Ahab is a sick and twisted king. Ahab, the son of Omri, again, verse 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. As if that weren't enough, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So it wasn't that Ahab was kind of partially following the Lord, but also following his other idols. He gave up the Lord 100%, and he was a Baal man. He was a Baal follower. And he worshipped Baal. He erected, verse 32, an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. His own temple now. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And his wife Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, Ethbaal, the king of the Zidonians, was also the high priest of Baal worship. So he marries into the whole family. And he is sucked in, lock, stock, and barrel. Ahab is an evil guy. We're going to leave him there for now because we're going to see an awful lot of Ahab's ugly face for the next several chapters as he and his wife Jezebel are the foil for one of the greatest prophets Israel has ever seen. But look at this last verse before we end tonight. Verse 34 says, In his days, Hiel, the Bethlehite, 
built Jericho. Who's Hiel? Is he one of the kings? No. Just a guy. Just a guy who had a little bit of money, got some financial backing, and went up to rebuild the city of Jericho. Remember the city of Joshua and the, and the children of Israel wiped out, marching around seven times, blowing the trumpets, walls fall down. So he goes to build Jericho. He laid his foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn. So his firstborn son dies as they're just setting up the foundation of the city. And he set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What is the deal with this? Now I'll tell you something. When you're reading through the Bible and you're dealing with the stories of the kings and you're moving one king to the next to the next and all of a sudden a verse just appears out of nowhere and seems completely unrelated, you need to stop. And look closely at the verse. Why is this here? Partially it's there because it's factual history and it happened at this time. During the reign of Ahab, this is when this guy went to build up Jericho. So it's historically accurate. But I think there's something more here. It actually, for me, it it sums up the truth that we've been seeing through the past three chapters, 14, 15, and 16. It ends with this one verse, and it's a perfect summation. It tells us, gang, that God keeps precise records. Some would read through the kings of Israel and just go, okay, yeah, he died, and isn't it written about him in the the books of the Chronicles of the Kings? And again and again we keep seeing this stuff, and it's a little monotonous, and and maybe a little like high school history class, and, okay, why do we need to hear all this stuff? And... And then you come to this and you realize God doesn't forget a thing. God keeps absolute and perfect records. You see, after the destruction of Jericho by Joshua and the Israelites some 450 some odd years earlier, the Bible told us this. Joshua 6.26 Joshua made them take an oath at that time after they had wiped out Jericho saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. With the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. And that's exactly what happened. And what's interesting to me is the book of Joshua was written much earlier, hundreds of years earlier than the book of 1 Kings. So when this happened, the writer of 1 Kings, tipped off by the Holy Spirit, goes, Oh yeah, this is exactly what God said was going to happen. Through Joshua. God doesn't forget. He keeps precise records. Abiram, the firstborn son of Hiel, is killed when they laid the foundations. And Segub, now the youngest, is killed when they set up its gates, just as the curse promised. What's that got to do with all these kings? It's exact record keeping. Precise accounting. God doesn't miss a thing. You see, we do and say things all the time in our lives that we forget about them. Cheryl is always telling me, well, don't you remember you said this? And I'm like, really? I, yeah, you, you said that we would meet this couple for lunch after church this Sunday. Okay. Which is why if you want to make an appointment or, or date with Cheryl and I, you call her. Because <laughs> I won't remember it. I'll walk out of church going, yeah, that's great. Well, we'll meet later. You know? <laughs> Off it goes. We say things, we do things, we don't remember them but Jesus said in Matthew 12:36, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give accounting for it in the day of judgment. I'm in trouble. <laughs> every careless word, the things that I say thoughtfully or thoughtlessly, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do this. And God goes, okay. Got it. You have that written down. Precise accounting. Exact record keeping. God has perfect track of it all. Now don't lose me here, because I know some of you might be jumping ahead and going, well, wait a minute. This 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongdoing. How do you deal with that, Pastor? I'll tell you how, just wait. Exact record keeping, God has it all written down, and we have a choice. We can go by our deeds that God has recorded, and we can have the books of deeds opened up. And we can let that be our judgment. Or, or, we can have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life and every careless word and every stupid thing and all the sins I've committed that I have forgotten about, God has forgotten about it too. Which is wonderful news. 
Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 tells us about these books. That I saw the dead, John writes, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Books were opened. Multiple books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We've talked about this in that Revelation study. There are two kinds of books here. There's the book of life, and then there are books of deeds, which keep a precise accounting of everything that every person has ever done throughout all of history. Every sin of your life would be in the book of deeds, unless your name is written in the book of life. Revelation 20.12 says, The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, the books of deeds according to their deeds I don't want to go all into this right now but the dead being talked about are those who have chosen to be judged according to their deeds not those who have accepted Jesus and the cross of Calvary because if you accepted Jesus and the cross of Calvary you're not resurrected for the second judgment for the second resurrection you are resurrected in the first resurrection which is the rapture of the church or well yes the rapture because if you die even then you're raptured And your judgment, as I've said over and over and over, please don't miss this, God keeps perfect records, but my judgment and all the deeds that I ever did were wiped clean by the blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Judgment day for Rick was 2,000 years ago. It's over. And even those careless words that I speak, I will not give an accounting for in the day of judgment because Jesus accounted for everyone on the cross. And that's our ray of hope. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Jesus lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's righteousness. That is right living with the Father. So as we close out chapter 16, I want to leave you with that ray of hope. Not to be judged by the perfect accounting of everything done, but to be judged by the work of Jesus Christ, who is perfect in and of himself. By the way, there's also a ray of hope in the midst of the dark days of the kings under Ahab and Jezebel. And that ray of hope is the greatest prophet next to Moses ever to rise in Israel. We're going to talk about him on Sunday, the prophet Elijah. And it starts to get really interesting. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us by it tonight. I hope, as I said before, Lord, that my brothers and sisters will experience and have the same or or more encouragement than I had going through this. But I am reminded, Lord, that in spite of our foolishness, that you continue to love us and call us. I'm reminded that you really do want that relationship with us. And Lord, that is so good to know. I ask, Father, tonight that you will, as our eyesight dims to the physical things in this world, that you will increase our hearing to know your voice and to walk by faith and not by sight. And draw us near to you and let us be, Father, your children, heirs to a great inheritance. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to let you go because we went really long tonight. You hung in great. God bless you all. And uh, chapter 17 or 18 Sunday, depending on what happens.